The following message is brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of the Ambassador Baptist Church and Pastor Joshua Ermler. Well, good morning, church family, and uh, I hope that you've had a wonderful weekend. I'm looking forward to diving into God's Word. Hebrews chapter number 11 is where we'll be today, Hebrews chapter number 11, as we continue our series, Habits of Grace. Over these last several weeks, we have been looking at different spiritual practices that the Bible teaches will stir up our ability to enjoy Jesus and to experience the grace that God makes freely available to us. It allows us to experience that grace much more deeply and much more profoundly. Uh, what I found as I moved through the Christian life and as I pastor church, the reality is there are several individuals and many times Christians who are going through the motions of their Christian life. They're dotting the I's, they're crossing their T's, they're walking the walk, they're talking the talk, and yet their Christian experience has absolutely no joy. Uh, they do not have any real peace in the midst of difficult circumstances. And they're not experiencing the unconditional love of God, nor are they able to express unconditional love toward people who are not doing things their way. And so what we're looking at is some spiritual practices, what sometimes is referred to as uh, sacred disciplines, that really do stir up that grace the ability to enjoy that grace, and the ability to experience Jesus in fresh, profound, and deep ways. And so each week we have been looking at a different spiritual practice that God in His Spirit uses to stir these things up. We've looked at Bible reading, we've looked at prayer, we've looked at fasting, we've looked at uh, church, we've looked at many different spiritual disciplines, and this week we're going to look at the spiritual discipline of perseverance, spiritual discipline of perseverance. Let's stand as we read from our text, Hebrews chapter number 11. Um, I'm going to read starting in verse number 32. I'm going to make a few comments, and then I might continue reading uh, after that. Hebrews chapter number 11. Now, as we've been saying, and I want to say this again for this spiritual discipline, none of these spiritual disciplines cause God to love us anymore, all right? We understand that. However, what we're talking about can help us to love God more. These won't cause God to enjoy you more, but it will cause you, if done in a spirit of faith, to enjoy God more. And that's really what this series is about, and I hope it'll be a help to you as we dive into this particular message on perseverance. The Bible says this in Hebrews chapter 11, uh, verse number 32. Hebrews 11, verse 32. And what shall I more say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon, and of Barak, and of Samson, and of Jephthah, of David also, and of Samuel, and of the prophets. So the entire chapter of uh, Hebrews 11 is sometimes referred to as the Hall of Faith. Uh, here in this passage, the author, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, has just shared character after character after character who have lived out lives of audacious faith in God. And so, as the author continues, he comes to verse 32 and says, hey, this list is not exhaustive. There's a whole lot more names that I could mention of people who have lived their lives by faith. What did these people do? Verse 33, who through faith subdued kingdoms wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, 
quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Now let me just pause there here for just a moment. As we read verses 32, verses 33, and verses 34, this is why a lot of us decided, I want to get into this Christian life thing. We read verses like that, and we're looking at this. Man, here are people, they're subduing and conquering kingdoms. Here are people stopping the mouths of lions. They're putting to flight the armies of the enemy. And there are people who got into this Christian life because they're like, that's what I'm all about. I'm all about living a triumphant life. I'm all about living a victorious life. I'm all about living a life where just things go awesome and amazing. They look at a passage like that and they're like, man, that's something yeah, I could do. You know, is that that's something I want to do? You know, where where do I sign up for that? Because we read those verses and, and it's pretty awesome. It's pretty amazing. It's pretty incredible when you read it. The problem is no one wants to keep reading this passage. No one wants to admit that the path God may have you on looks a lot less like verse 32 and a lot more like verse 35. You say, what does that say? Let's read here. Verse 36, and others had trial of cruel mockings and scourging, literally whippings. Yea, moreover, of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn asunder. They were tempted. They were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented. I want to speak this morning on how to persevere in God's grace in the midst of incredible opposition and extreme difficulty. Shall we pray? Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. We thank you that your grace is always freely available to us. Lord, and as you give us your word and your promises, Lord, you teach us these things so that our joy might be full. Lord, I pray that you would give me the spirit, Lord, that would convey to the spirit of these individuals the heart of your word. I pray that you would allow my tone to be aligned with your tone and that my words would align with your words. Lord, I pray that you would do what my personality and my abilities is incapable of doing, and that is speaking to the heart and soul of individuals. Lord, there are people in this room right now, and they don't need to hear from me, Lord. They need your spirit just to revive them again, to stir up the grace that is in them, Lord, so that they can once again experience a relationship with you that is dynamic and thriving and one that draws them, Lord, into Uh, bringing you greater glory and greater honor. I pray that you'd bless as we speak on this subject. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. 
If you and I are not careful, we can easily begin to convince ourselves that the first part of this text, verse 32, verses 33, and verses 34, they are normative, and verses 36 and verses number 37, that those are very strange and highly unlikely. In fact, the modern church in the day and age in which we live would like to convince you that if you become a Christian, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, then it's probably like that your life will look like verses 32 through verses 34. That basically your life will always be victorious, that your life will always be triumphant, that God will always bless you, and just the Christian life is like a a, a walk in a park. And, And that's what some would have you to believe. And yet, as you go to the scriptures, the reality is, it's not like persecution is strange and victory is normative. In fact, in many cultures... In many places in the world in which we live, it is quite the opposite. I can take you to countries right now and we can take you to geographic locations right this very moment where what we read is opposite. Where what is normative in those countries with what is normal in those places is persecution hardship, trial, and difficulty. And what would be strange and unlikely would be a Christian experience that feels awesome and exciting and wonderful and just has feelings of euphoria wrapped into it. You see, we live in a geographic location. We live in a time in history that is very unnormal. For those of you who have studied Christian history, For those of you who have studied the history of the world, you understand that the freedoms, the religious freedoms that we have been able to enjoy as Americans over the last couple of hundred years, that hasn't been normal. It's our life. It's all that we've ever known. And so we begin to convince ourselves that victory and triumph and euphoric, good-feeling Christianity, that, that's what Christianity is all about. But persecution and hardship, that's, that's not so normal. And yet the reality is we live in a bubble to some degree. We have been blessed to some degree to be, to be safe a little bit from some of the physical persecution that exists in the day in which we live. But the reality is, as we move forward toward what God has for us, there might be moments and there might be seasons where God's sovereign, divine, perfect will for your life looks a lot more like verses 36 and 37. And he would be loving, and he would be good, and he would be just in allowing that to be your personal experience in your family, in your marriage, in your work environment. God would not be unfair to allow you to go through a valley such as that. But when those things happen, what do we do? 
What if God's will for your life looks more like verses 36, 37, 38? Instead of conquering kingdoms, the kingdom begins to crush you. Instead of stopping the mouths of lions, that lion chews you up and spits you out. Instead of putting to flight the armies, the armies literally literally trample you over. How will you do at persevering? How will you do at faithfully enduring? How will you do it sustaining your Christian experience if that becomes your reality within your home and that becomes your reality within your experience, if that becomes your reality in your workplace, if that becomes our reality in this country? How do we persevere? This last week, today, last week has been known as the National Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. In fact, Uh, When we're done today, we're going to take some time to pray for the persecuted church. Inside your service program, uh, there was a little bit of information uh, from some of our friends at an organization called Remember. Uh, Brother uh, Gabe here is on the board of that particular organization that seeks to minister to persecuted Christians and the persecuted church in many of these closed countries. He could do a far better job than I at explaining much of what Christians have to endure to do exactly what you and I are doing right here in this moment. And in this day, there are those that are being persecuted and martyred. Uh, He told us, I believe it was last year, maybe the year before, that persecution is higher now than at any other point in history. So for us to begin to believe that, well, that was, that was something of, of a bygone area, it, it, it doesn't, it, we're, not, we're not being honest with ourselves. Persecution toward Christianity is not gone extinct. It's not an anomaly. It is very normative in the day and age in which we live. So here's our theme today. If you're not willing to face the adversity of verses 35, 36, and 37, then you may not be ready to experience the accomplishments of verses 33 and verses 34. Do you hear me? If you're not ready and willing to face the adversity, you might not be able, you might not be ready to experience the accomplishments of verse 33 and verses 34. So how do we persevere in a race that is set before us when the race gets difficult? How do we persevere in a marriage that gets hard? How do we persevere in ministering to our children and to our grandchildren when it just seems like culture around them is giving them so many different messages that are anti-God and anti-Christ? How do we persevere in a culture and in a world that just uh, does not esteem the word of God, that does not esteem his glory? How do we be faithful? How do we persevere in the midst of difficult times when the Christian life is not a walk in the park, when it's all not just kind of uh, happy sunny days and rainbows and unicorns? How do we persevere in those moments? And that's what this passage refers to. Notice what it says. Let's keep reading. Verse, verse number 1 of chapter number 12, the Bible says, wherefore, now let me just pause it for that, a moment. Uh, most of you probably know this, but the chapter and verse breaks found in the scriptures 
are not divinely inspired, all right? How many of you realize that those verse breaks and those chapter breaks, uh, God didn't put those there. That's something man kind of invented, you know, hundreds of years later to help us find things in the Scripture. So in this particular passage, when it was originally written, there wasn't like a break. This was just one continual thought. And so the author, under the inspiration of, of the Holy Spirit, he was talking about persecution. He was talking about difficulty. He said, hey, things might get hard. Things might get, be difficult. But then he says, wherefore? Because of the persecution, because of the difficulty, because of the faith that we have to to move through these moments wherefore because of this seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses notice this let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us and notice this and let us run with patience the race that is set before us Uh, Let me just give you a quick uh, little lesson here. That word patience in the Greek is hupomone. It's translated in other, uh, here it's translated in other verses and other chapters. This word hupomone is also translated enduring. In other places in the New Testament, it's translated patient, continuance. It it literally means consistency. It speaks of endurance. It speaks of sustaining. And so when the Bible says, let us run with patience, it's saying, let us run with consistency. Let us run with endurance. Let us run with perseverance. Let us sustain ourselves in the race that God has put before us. Now, Sometimes, maybe it's just me, when I hear the word patience in my own head, it derives connotations of of a passivity. I don't know if it does this for you. When I think of patience, I think of this idea of, oh, all right, well, I just got to sit back and do nothing, and I'm just going to be patient, all right? Almost like I'm going to do nothing. That's the connotation that the word has for me as it resonates in my head. That might not be the case for you, but for me, that's how I tend to interpret this idea of patience. However, you have to understand that this Greek word, hupomone, that's not the full connotation of what it's trying to get across. It is a patient enduring. It is a patient uh, sustaining, a, a patient perseverance. It's not a passive patience. But the reason this word is used is because it's not also the other side, all right? Not only is it not passively patient, um, it's also not in this passage a, a, a self-determined stick to itness. all right? It's neither of those things. Sometimes when we think of the word perseverant, it kind of conjures up thoughts of just like willpower and determination, and I'm going to stick to something no matter how hard it gets, and this Greek word is not trying to describe either of those things. It's not saying be passively patient and do nothing, but it's also not saying be, you know, self-righteously, self-dependently, just stick to it and persevering, gritting your teeth, making it happen no matter how hard it gets, no matter how difficult, no matter how uh, emotional it feels, just don't stop. It's not saying that either. This Greek word is something in the middle of those two. It literally speaks here of just this being drawn 
in perseverance. In fact, the Apostle Paul is going to use this word later, and he's going to say to give us a, 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 a stronger understanding of what this word really means. He's going to say, patience of hope. And what he's trying to describe here is he's saying, hey, this perseverance that we're talking about, this endurance that we're talking about isn't, isn't mustered up in our flesh as we get, you know, we feel guilty and we feel ashamed and we feel bad about ourselves and so all of a sudden it kind of does something inside of us and it lights a fire and we think, wow, I can do it. We put on the rocky music and we go at it. It's not that. What this word is referring to is that we have a such, such a strong faith in, in our hope. That's why patience of hope is how Paul refers to this. He says the hope that we have in what God can accomplish is so strong that the hope is so big that instead of our flesh having to push us forward in perseverance and self-discipline and in willpower because we're angry and upset and guilty and ashamed, no, it's saying that there's this patient perseverance in humility we're brought along by hope. That because we have a hope in God and we know that God always wins, it stirs within our heart, it changes the molecular structure of our soul to the degree that we just begin to align with him. We, we are drawn toward him with a spirit of hope. You see what this is describing here? It's not passivity. It's not just this, you know, self-dependent willpower. It's a perseverance, a patient, humble perseverance that's drawn toward. It's not, being, it's not pushing us, it's drawing us by the hope that we have in Christ. This is why faith is so important, and that's why this passage is given to us within the context of faith. As we have the ability, as we express hope and faith in God, believing that God's grace will give us what we need to persevere in difficult times, we get to experience what is talked about in this passage. You see, as we are God-dependent in our perseverance, God uses that to allow us to experience his grace in deeper ways. As we come to God and say, God, in this marriage, in this role that I have at work, with the financial situation that lies before me, in my spiritual realm, God, I feel like I'm weak. And so, God, I humble myself before you, God, and by faith, I simply say, God, I, I need, I claim that my new nature is perseverant. Now, my feelings want to quit. My emotions want me to throw in the towel. But by faith, I believe that there is hope in God and my faith is anchored to the reality that my new nature desires to be perseverant even when my emotions are telling me something different. When my feelings are telling me something different, when my past is telling me something different, I claim by faith that my new nature, that the spirit of God that was placed within me desires what you desire. And by faith you surrender, you yield to that and let the hope that emerges draw you in humble patient, perseverance, consistency through the Christian life. That is where perseverance comes from. 
If you think perseverance comes from willpower, you're going to eventually burn out. And if you think perseverance is just, well, God is on the throne. If he wants me to do something, he can just make it happen. (laughs) Neither of the extremes. It's a faith that believes that God has put a new nature in me. That trust that our God has given us a spirit of hope that draws us forward in perseverance to do things that our flesh says is difficult, things that our flesh doesn't want to do. Our new nature is drawn by our hope in God that he works all things together for good and that in the end he wins. And the reality, because we so believe in that hope, our soul is so anchored to the reality that that is true. It draws us forward in faith to be perseverant. And I want to say this, the soul that does this experiences a special experiential nature of grace. When, when you by faith claim the perseverance that is yours in the new nature, you will enjoy your relationship with Jesus in ways that folks who, who don't appropriate this in that way will not understand. It won't make sense to them. You'll be able to experience just the, the fruit of the Spirit in ways that people do who by faith don't appropriate and, and reckon, like we said last week, this to be true. They won't enjoy the Christian experience and they won't be able to experience the grace that God makes available to all of us in quite the same way. It's available to every person in this room who's in Christ. But not every one of you will avail yourself to the provision that God gives you. Now, I'll say this to get very practical. The new nature that is in you is the same new nature that is in me It is the new nature of the Spirit of God. You say, what does the new nature want? The scripture is very clear. I could go on for a long time, but I will say this. Your new nature wants to be consistent to those things that are near and dear to the heart of God. Your new nature wants to be faithful to your spouse, regardless of what your feelings tell you. Claim that, God. By faith, I humbly surrender that that is the deepest longing of my soul, regardless of what other voices tell you, regardless of what your emotions tell you, that that is the cry, the longing, the craving of your new nature. Your new nature desires to honor and glorify Christ through that union. Your new nature wants to be faithful to church. The Bible tells us in Hebrews, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. And so what, the, what Paul is saying is he's saying, uh, there's some Christians that do this. They're not perseverant in their church attendance. And he says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of such is, but so much the more as you see the day approaching. The closer we get to those times where Christ will come back again, there should be something in our soul that desires a greater consistency to the house of God. That is what your new nature desires. You say, no, I want to be out doing sports. 
I want to be out shopping. I want to be out running. I want to be out with my kids playing sport. I'm, your flesh might want that, but I'm going to tell you what your new nature wants. Your new nature wants what God wants. Your new nature desires to be faithful to the Lord in our giving and in our offering. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians, on the first day of the week, let him lay in stores. God has prospered him to be consistent in radical generosity. That's what your new nature desires. Now, your flesh is going to desire that material possession and this bigger house and that cooler car. And I'm going to tell you this, while your flesh might desire that, your new nature wants to persevere in radical, sacrificial generosity to the world in which we live through his local church. That's what your new nature actually wants. Your new nature desires these things in the way Christ lived. If you see it in Christ's life, that's what he wants to manifest. His spirit is now inside of you. That's what you really want. Your flesh will tell you a thousand other things, but what your spirit wants is what God desires and what he prioritizes. So let's dive into this. In verses number one and verses number two, we're going to see some ways in which you and I can persevere in the race that God set before us, even when our flesh tells us it's hard. And we, even when our emotions say, I don't want to do that. (laughs) And even when our mind tells us there's more important things to do with our schedule and with our budget and with our lives and with our energy, how do we persevere in that which glorifies God? How do we honor him? How do we glorify him when our flesh doesn't want to? When life gets difficult, when things get hard, how do we navigate that? Let's see what it says. Wherefore, seeing we're compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, notice this, let us lay aside, what's the next word? Every weight. So let me give you a definition for this here. A weight is a good thing. You say, how do you know it's a good thing? Because it's going to go on to say every weight and sin. So these weights are not sin. These weights are not things that are wicked. These weights are not things that are horrible. Weights are good things that keep us from the best things. Weights are misplaced priorities, if you want to write it down in your service program. That's a weight. A misplaced priority. Weights are good things that keep us from the best things. Can I say this? As American, the Christian church in America, we are probably being hurt more by weights than we are by sin. We are being more, as a collective church, the impact that God wants to use, this church and the local church and the universal church, what, the thing that limits our ability of making the impact I believe God wants us to make far more often than the sin, and we're going to talk about that in a moment, are the weights. These good things, and this is why we can all justify them, because they're good. They are not things the Bible says is wicked and sinful and bad. They're just weights. Uh, Some of you watched the Olympics this last summer. You watched those runners run. It would not have been evil for a runner to put a backpack of bricks on his shoulders as he ran the race. 
That would not have been an evil thing. Now, if he would have had a bomb in there and blew everybody up, that would have been evil. <laughs> but if it was just a bag of bricks that didn't affect anybody else, the reality is it would have slowed him down. And I want to say this. The Bible says here, hey, how are we going to persevere? How does God's grace stir us up? How is our new nature drawn along and running the race to the glory of Christ in a way that would honor him? Paul, here we see in this passage, lay aside every weight. Good things that take the place of best things. What is that for you? This is not talking about sin, and this is why it's so easy for us as Christians to justify it. Just think about it for a moment. What is the thing in your heart, it's a good thing, that regularly trumps and overrides better things? Mispriority, which leads us here to our first thought today, just simply this here. Number one, we must be willing to let go of those priorities that weigh us down. We must be willing to let go of those priorities that weigh us down. Just like a runner who is running in the Olympics, yes, he would not be evil to put a backpack of bricks on his shoulders, but it would also be unwise for him to do that. You say, why? Because it's going to make him tired trying to do what he's supposed to do. He is going to grow weary and even weak beyond that which he has to be because he won't let go of the weight. And that's what's happening in our church today. It's there are people who take on weights and they can justify it because it is not sin, it is not wicked, it is not horrible. And for somebody else in some other situation in a different context with different pressures on their lives might be able to say, hey, this is a God-ordained thing for me. But for you, it constantly trumps better things. It constantly overrides better things. And it's a weight for you. What is it? A good thing. A healthy thing in the proper context. That for you constantly begins to prioritize itself over best things. It's a priority that keeps you from spending the time with your kids that you know the Spirit of God wants you to spend time with them. It's the thing that somehow edges out in your schedule your ability to really commune with God in a very formal way. See, everybody's fine with pastors preaching on sin, but we talk about weights, not, not sins. Good, healthy things in their proper context that simply force us to misprioritize. 1 Corinthians says this, Know ye not that they which run in a race, run all. Paul's saying, hey, when you run in a race, you're doing everything you can to give everything you've got. Man, you're trying to get off the weight, you're trying to put on the right shoes. When you're running in a race, you want to give it everything you got. He says, but one receiveth the prize. So he says this, so run that you may obtain. Guys, I want to say this. Run your Christian life in a way where you will not grow weary. You see, you put these weights on. You, you allow these priorities in your life and you think, oh, it'll, it's, it's fun for my kids and it's, it's, it's cool for that. And they're not bad things. 
but all of a sudden you find that you grow weary in your Christian life. Your hunger and thirst for God begins to wane. You don't desire, you're not drawn toward God like you once were. Because there's weights that are slowing you down. There are weights there that are, they're not bad, they're not simple. They're just keeping you from doing what God wants to do through you. They're hurting you. And see, because your flesh likes them, you don't want to give them up. And because they're good, it's easy for you to justify them even when the Holy Spirit tells you no. Because I can't tell you no. I can't tell you don't go golfing. I can't tell you don't spend that money. I can't tell you, hey, make sure you prioritize the Bible over Facebook. I'm not the one who can say no to Facebook and no to shopping and no to golfing because they're They're okay things. They're good things. But the Holy Spirit has told you to know because you're prioritizing that over God and you're not listening. It's a weight. See, you say, how do we as Christians justify this? I'm not picking on anybody. Let me just give you an example because I want you to intentionally be thoughtful about how this creeps into your heart and how this creeps into your life. For example, let's say, I don't think anybody here is going to deal with this, so I think it's a safe example. A guy says, ah, I got to go golfing, you know, and he goes golfing two, three, four times a week. And then all of a sudden, Sunday morning comes along, and his wife's like, honey, you never spend any time with me. And the guy's like, oh, yeah, you're right, I don't. Uh, uh, let's, let's go on a date right now. And so they completely skip church. And you know how they justify it? Well, family's more important than church. Okay. But it was a domino effect. It was a guy who, who took all the margin he should have been investing in children, all the time he should have been investing in his family, all the time he should have been investing in these more important things. And all of a sudden, when the, when the, when the priorities clash, it's like, what do I do? We need to be intentional. The prudent man, the Bible says in wisdom, in the wisdom literature, the prudent man foreseeth these things. He foresees them. That's what a wise person, with the, with the spirit of God in them, they can foresee these things. And they say, wait a second. I'm going to prioritize best things because I don't want to be slowed down in the race. And I realize these are hard words. You say, well, you're just being legalistic. I'm not telling you what to do. All I'm saying is listen to the Holy Spirit. I can't tell you not to do any of these things. Well, you know, my kid just has to be in this league. And, you know, I just have to run in this race every month on a Sunday. And I just have to play this. And I just have to spend on this. And I have to go to this. That's great. That's great. I'm not going to tell you not to do those things. But if the Holy Spirit is telling you no, listen to him. I want to say this, the Holy Spirit, your new nature, prioritizes his word. And if we'll come with humble hearts and just simply say, God, my emotions and my feelings, my logic, people around me, culture, there's, there's all these voices. And God's telling you, hey, I'm not saying those things are bad, but for you, they're taking the place of best things. And out of love for me, would you be willing to sacrifice them? What does God want you to sacrifice? I can't tell you what that is. But if you listen closely to the still small spirit of God, there's probably something he's saying. For some of us, it comes to financial generosity. The reason we can't be radically generous 
And for some of us, why we can't be radically sacrificial is because we have maxed out our credit cards to the hilt. And then we say, well, I got to put food on my table for my family. I get that. But maybe three months ago, you didn't need the new ATV, the nicer boat, and the three guns that you got. You say, well, you're, you're just being mean. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just trying to help our church to think. These aren't, you say, well, you're telling me it's wrong to have an ATV? I'm not saying it's wrong to have an ATV. What I'm saying is a prudent man, a wise man foresees, wait a second, if I, if I get myself in a, in a priority situation where all of a sudden the Holy Spirit says, hey, give to that homeless, give to that organization, bless your church, and you can't because you've already maxed out these things, it's a weight. And you're going to find over time you're not able to run your race like God would have you to run. You're going to get tired of it. You're going to grow weary in this. How are we going to prioritize? See, it makes me sad, but a lot of us in a spirit of ignorance, and I know nobody does this purposefully. Please understand my spirit in this. I, I, I realize that this is not, we like got this master plan and we're just trying to edge God out to where he's no part of our life. I, I know there's nobody in this room that does this, but I'm afraid that the enemy is sly. And American culture is so strong that this stuff happens to us and we don't even think about it. See, I want to encourage you guys to be careful when you make commitments that three weeks, six weeks, four months from now is going to cause you an ethical dilemma of priorities. See, some of you sign up for something and then all of a sudden, three months, six months down the road, it creates an ethical dilemma of priorities for your kids. And some of you, man, you sign that you're gonna take out this much money for this thing and Six months down the road, you're going to have an ethical dilemma of priorities because the Spirit of God is going to lead you to do something and you're not going to be able to. These are just weights. And I'm not telling you what those weights, I don't know what a weight is for you. I'm not trying to be legalistic. I'm not trying to tell you what God wants you to do. What I am saying is think about it for yourself. Because if I know American culture well enough, and I, I think I get insights into it, most of us in this room have weights. And the reason we have them is because we don't see them. And I'm just wanting to be a voice that says, would you at least look for them? But some of us don't want to see them. And then we wonder, why am I getting so tired in my Christian life? Why do I not have affection for Jesus? Why am I not enjoying his grace? Well, I just, I guess, you know, this stuff doesn't work and they throw up their arms. It's because you've weighed yourself down so heavily. It's like the Olympic runner who puts, you know, 300 pounds of bricks on his back and he wonders, how can he not run the race? Just take, take off the weights. Surrender them to his lordship. What is a weight to you? A good thing that you justify that constantly creates ethical dilemmas of priority for you. That on a regular basis forces you to choose between what your new nature is and what your flesh desires. Misplaced priorities will really complicate your Christian experience and minimize your ability to persevere. 
it's sad to say there might be some people in this room right now and one year from today you'll have nothing to do with church your kids won't really grow up knowing what it is to love Jesus with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and it's not gonna be because of some horrible sin. It might be because you just kept allowing weights, the weights of this culture to creep in and creep in and creep in, and before you knew it, you couldn't move forward anymore. You're so tired, you're so weary, you just couldn't do it. And I, you say, why are you telling us this? Because I want your joy to be full. God says, hey, I write these things unto you that your joy might be full. I want you to run the race that's set before you and I want you to be able to run so that you might win. I want you to be able to do this in a way where you can be successful and some of you unintentionally don't even realize it, but you're taking on weights and you're hurting yourself. And I want to say this, some of you are hurting people around you. Your kids are beginning to believe that those fleshly priorities are the priority. And there's younger Christians around who see you at church and they think, oh, that's what a good Christian, that's how a good Christian prioritizes things. And they look to you and get a misrepresentation of the priorities of God. And I want to just encourage you, would you just, would you just come to God humbly and say, God, by faith, I believe that I have different values, different priorities. And my flesh and my desires, you say, are you saying I can never go golfing and I can never buy something at the store? No, please don't take that as saying any of those things. I'm not. I'm just saying structure it in a way where God always over prioritize over all these lesser things. That's what I'm saying. That he, his will, his house, his desires gets the priority above everything else in your life. Let's keep reading. It goes on to say, lay aside every weight and the sin that doth so easily beset us. See, if weights are the things that slow us down, then sin is the thing that trips us up. Uh, sin is like trying to run a race with your tennis shoe laces tied together. Imagine if I brought somebody up here and I tied their shoelaces together and I said, I want you to sprint as fast as you can when I say go. Man, they're gonna fall flat on their face. That's what sin does. Sin is the suicidal action of the soul against itself. You say, why? I don't understand. Why does God call this sin and why does God call that sin? Because it hurts you. It hurts me. It stops us dead in our tracks. And I ask you to repent. To simply agree with God. And say, God, I want my joy to be full. God, I want my life to have a peace that passeth understanding. Sin is the thing that gets in the way from us experiencing all the riches that are ours in Christ. It's for your benefit, he warns you, of sin. It's for your good. It's for your joy. Lay aside every weight and the sin that so doth easily beset us. Galatians 5 verse 7 says this. You did run well. 
Who hindered you that you should not obey the truth? So I ask you that question. Who's the one in your life that's convincing you that this sin is okay? You were, you were doing well. Remember that? Remember four years ago? You were doing so well. I, I'm just, you're saying, well, why are you saying that? I, 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 this is nothing new. But there's some in this room, you were doing so well. What hindered you? Who hindered you? Well, this person offended me. Who hindered you? Well, that person let me down. You let me down. Who hindered you? Your life was such a radiant expression of the glory of God. And by faith, this moment, you can experience that afresh and anew again. Lay aside every weight and the sin that doth so easily beset us. Notice verse number two. If, uh, does anybody see a period at the end of verse one? Yes or no? Yeah, anybody want to talk to me for a second? It's a comma, okay? For those of you who are kind of into grammar, what does that mean? It means the thought hasn't stopped. He's continuing the thought. This is not the end of the st- st- sentence. He's not just like lay aside weight, lay aside sin. He says this, comma, look unto Jesus. Look unto Jesus. Yes, number one, we must be willing to let go of those priorities that weigh us down. What's the weight for you? Say, well, I don't feel like it's slowing me down. You might not think it, but it is. The Spirit says yes, and you say no. Your new nature says, I desire it, and your flesh says that. Number one, we must be willing to let go of priorities that weigh us down by, by God's grace through faith. By grace through faith, we must be willing to let go of those passions that trip us up. The sin that trips us up. Number three, we must be willing to let go by, by faith. We just claim this by faith. We say, God, by faith, I believe this to be true and God, I pray that you would allow me to experience the grace of strength for it. You claim it instantly by faith. This is what your new nature desires. It is what your new nature is. We must be willing to let go of those preoccupations that distract our focus. God calls us to look to Jesus and so often you and I will look to a pastor. We will look to another person in the church. We will look to our spouse. We will look to our boss. We'll look look to a thousand people other than Jesus and wonder why we get off course every single time. Imagine trying to run a race where you weren't looking at where you were going. Anybody ever run into something because you weren't looking at where you were going? Sarah and Nick told us a funny story this week. Sarah was telling us though she, she was running and she looked at somebody. Somebody called her name. She looked and ran smack into a pole, you know, about fell over. Why? She wasn't looking. She wasn't paying attention. Can I I say this to you? What preoccupations distract your focus from Jesus? What person irritates you so badly that you can no longer keep your focus on Jesus? What material possession does your soul lust after and crave for that you no longer look to Jesus? 
What is it for you that gets your eyes and your focus off of God? The pursuit of money? Hey, money's not a bad thing, but it can preoccupy you to the point where you're no longer looking to God. Your job? For some, of a, for some people in this room, it might be a girlfriend or a boyfriend. It's not that it's sin or wrong, but the amount of weight you give it in your schedule and in your time and in your attention has become a preoccupation that keeps you from having regular times with a heart and mind fixed on Christ. What is it that preoccupies the heart and the soul? The great tragedy of life is not failure. The great tragedy of life is succeeding at things that don't matter for eternity. The tragedy of life is not failure. We're all going to fail. As I talk about these things, I'm going to say this. I have messed up at every single one of them. I'm not placing myself above you. I'm with you on this. We've all struggled in the messiness of our sanctification together. We all wrestle through these things, and it's, it's messy, and it's hard, and it's difficult. We're all on the same page. The great tragedy of life is not that we fail at times. You failed, I failed, we've all failed in every one of these areas. Thank God for the grace of Jesus Christ and his abundant mercy that is new every single morning. The great tragedy of life is not failure. The great tragedy of life is being successful at things that eventually will not matter for an eternity. You say, I keep messing up. I keep falling down. Why does God keep allowing this? Maybe he's doing it in his mercy. Maybe he keeps allowing you to fail in mercy because he loves you so much to keep you from succeeding at something that's gonna draw you away from his presence. And the reason he does, you keep moving this, you can't get any momentum with the career or making the money you want is because God loves you too much to let you have your way. Because he knows that you will prioritize that a thousand times over him. And so he continues in his mercy to allow you to fail. Because that's not the tragedy of life. The tragedy of life would be being successful at that thing. Spending your entire life in something that ultimately matters zilch in eternity. To love God and to love people. That that is why you're placed on this planet. To experience him. To enjoy him forever. And anything that will cause your heart to find its affection in something other than Jesus, he is willing to have taken away from you. And he'll do it out of love. He'll do it so you can experience real joy because you're chasing after that lesser thing, thinking that it will bring peace, thinking it will bring joy, thinking it will bring you ultimate satisfaction. And God in his mercy is allowing you to fail at that so he can give you something better. He loves you. And I love you. And we're here for each other. But every once in a while, we need to be reminded that there is a grace in perseverance. That those who year after year, decade after decade, are able to regularly put aside weights and sin and their preoccupations and look to Jesus, there is a grace that you enjoy in that place. 
there's an ability to experience God's grace in deep and profound ways that those of us who, who, who are in the messy middle of this don't get to experience quite as deeply. It's still there. It's still available. But we don't enjoy it the same way that others do. And that's what God, that's the promise he has for you. So I'll end with this. You say, Pastor, I feel like I've messed up with all of these. And I want to say to you, God's grace and his mercy is for you in this moment. It's okay. You're okay. You've already been forgiven. If you've placed your faith and trust in Christ, everything we've just talked about today that you, that you did wrong has already been forgiven. But what should that do to your soul? Wow. All that sin and all those weights and the preoccupation and the messiness of my sanctification, God says, forgiven. Now yield to what your new nature desires so that your joy might be full. You're not being hurt for your sin. You're not being punished for your sin. Well, I've been taking these weights and I've had these sins. God's not punishing you for your sin. He's not punishing you for those weights. You might be punished by those sins and you might have been suffering because of those weights. There's a big difference between being punished for sin and being punished by sin. God is not punishing you for those of you who are in Christ for your sin. He gave all of the punishment to Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary, every single ounce. You're not being punished for it. You say, I've been doing this. I feel like I'm being punished for it. God must hate me. I must be being punished for being a sinner and and for taking these weights. No. (laughs) You are not being punished for those weights. You are not being punished for that sin. You might find yourself being punished by those weights. (laughs) And you might find yourself experiencing the consequences of those weights. And that's why God says, let's not do that. It's going to hurt. I've got something better. And that's what he tells you today. You've got a weight. You've got a sin. You've got a preoccupation. And God, in his loving, merciful promise, says, I have something better. Something that will give you more joy and more peace and more satisfaction. And you can experience it by faith. That's the promise. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of the Ambassador Baptist Church. If this message was a blessing to you, please consider leaving us a review or sharing the message on social media. Thanks once again for tuning in.